0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, April 15th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story is from the Fearless column. Women have long begged for flexibility, paid family leave, and equal pay from their workplaces. Post-2020, companies are starting to listen. In latest business record survey results, see what 20 Iowa businesses and organizations are offering. By Emily Kestel For decades, women have generally worked in environments designed by men for men. Standard office temperatures are based on the metabolic resting rate of a 40-year-old man. Mandatory meetings are often scheduled at the same time as school dismissals there are often no designated spaces for lactation. There isn't federally guaranteed access to paid leave after having a baby. Even the concept of the 40-hour work week was designed for men with the assumption in mind that they had wives at home to manage domestic responsibilities and raise the children, not with the scenario of both parents working out of the home as is common now. For the first time in 2019, Women made up half of the American labor force. Then, in 2020, millions of women dropped out of the workforce to the point where the women's labor force participation rate was at a number not seen since the late 80s. As employers continue the quest to usher people back into the workforce and into the office, experts are sensing a turning tide in the way leaders think about what the modern workplace could and should look like. After 2020, companies have dramatically shifted policy priorities, as illustrated in Lean In's 2021 Women in the Workplace report. Some examples. Before 2020, 67% of companies offered paid family leave. Now, 84% do. Before 2020, 45% of companies offered support for employee resource groups. Now, 80% do. Before 2020, 37% of companies offered mental health support. Now, 97% do. Before 2020, 29% of companies offered support for parents. Now, 71% do. And before 2020, 27% of companies offered flexible working hours. Now, 88% do. In our inaugural Workplace Benefits Survey, the Business Record took a look at what some Iowa businesses and organizations are doing to support their employees at and outside of the workplace. An editor's note about the surveys. In a pair of surveys about gender issues and women in the workforce, the Business Record asked readers about workplace policies and practices that are known to affect women's participation and success. The Gender Issues Survey is a continuation of an annual effort to shine light on issues that women face in the state. The Workplace Benefits Survey was new this year and was meant to provide a space for business leaders to share their benefits, policies, and practices. Between February 21st and March 6th, a total of 286 people took the Gender Issues Survey while 70 people took the Workplace Benefits Survey. Just under 20 people included their names and organization in the workplace benefits survey. The organizations that were named were Palmer Group, John Deere, Baker Group, Sarah Noel Wilson Inc., ITA Group, Des Moines University, Story Kenworthy, Athene, The Beacon, Historic Valley Junction Foundation, Iowa Center for Economic Success, University of Northern Iowa, Happy Medium. World Food Prize Foundation, City of Urbandale, Hy-Vee, Fairway, and Bankers Trust. Some responses have been edited for clarity. Questions that appeared in our gender issue surveys are noted with an asterisk. Due to rounding, some percentages may not add up to 100. The first question, what must be done to help bring women back into the workplace and keep them there? some responses. Clear themes emerged from the 71 responses. Almost all of them mentioned flexibility, access to child care, fair and adequate pay, or paid family leave. Other respondents mentioned that a recognition for their work would help. We have three quotes here. We are in a time of incredible disruption, and we have an opportunity to fundamentally rethink how we approach work and our world. Access to affordable or free childcare would be transformative. Truly flexible work schedules where pay isn't tied to hours in the seat but output produced. It is truly unfair to force employees who have been successful at working effectively from home. To go back to an office full time. After getting a taste of it and realizing all the personal benefits, I never want to go back to an office full time. Pay them enough so they can afford to work. Help with childcare if that's an issue. Be flexible in work hours as needed to accommodate individual situations. Genuinely respect and reward them in various ways for their work. Recognize they likely are working to live, not living to work. The next question, what perks or benefits do you look for in a workplace? Of the 64 responses, the most common answers were flexibility, health care benefits, child care support, a solid retirement plan, paid family leave, and a respectful culture where their work is valued. When we asked Megan Milligan about the benefits and policies in place at the Iowa Center for Economic Success, she said, quote, We have really, really high expectations, but we give all the tools and resources the employee needs to get there. We compassionately usher you through our very high expectations of you, end quote. Survey responses, Basic needs are taken care of in an extraordinary way. People are paid fully for the worth and value they bring. So many companies say that those in customer service are the most important roles, and yet they were often some of the lowest paid. I'm interested in benefits that are designed to serve the humans they impact most, and not just the bottom line. And as a business owner, I understand that sometimes what you want to offer may be different than what you can, but there is always room to get creative. An organization that I think is a role model in human-first benefits is Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, led by the phenomenal leader Beth Shelton. They are always creating new ways to support their staff that will be inclusive and meaningful. Just look at their program that allows parents to bring their baby in until they are six months or start crawling. When we talk about building inclusive cultures, we have to be willing to challenge the rules we've created around what work needs to look like and consider bold new possibilities. Paid family leave and sick days that can also be used when children or dependent adults or aging parents need support. Time off with pay to vote. Vacation and personal time paid assistance with further education relevant to the job access as needed to a mentor and the individual to whom they report comfortability and respect between coworkers management that respects their team appropriate raises and growth within the workplace the little extras that show appreciation the company has for the employees A workplace that respects employees' non-work boundaries. A workplace that understands that people have lives outside of work that will sometimes intrude on their work hours. A workplace that not only provides a lot of paid holidays and paid vacation, but expects you to take it. A workplace that cares about employees as people and not just as means of production. Freedom. Autonomy. Respect confidence in my skills and ability to make decisions, and a rigid stance against micromanaging. The next survey question, does your company have flexible work policies? While many jobs, including food service, manufacturing, and retail cannot be done from home, Flexibility is often listed as the number one policy that companies should continue to implement post-pandemic if they want to retain employees. But some experts worry that remote work will hold women back. One scientist referred to a bias favoring those who are in the office, which may keep remote workers from getting promotions and stepping into leadership positions. Examples of policies The Beacon has unlimited, guilt-free, paid time off for salaried staff. No more tracking quarter hours, stressing over whether or not to take time off for an appointment, or saving up for vacations. When you need a mental health day, you take it. When you need a mental health week, you take it. As the Executive Director, I never average more than 40 hours per week so that my staff do not see overworking themselves as an expectation. The fear is that these kind of practices will reduce productivity, but they actually increase it. We've had an incredibly successful year, a healthier staff, and a significant reduction in employee turnover. From Melissa Vine on behalf of The Beacon. From Megan Milligan on behalf of the Iowa Center for Economic Success, she wrote, We work from home two days a week, have Fridays off between Memorial Day and Labor Day without increasing Monday to Thursday hours, and we offer flexibility for special circumstances. We also have the week between Christmas and New Year's off. That being said, just because our hours end at 4.30 p.m., That doesn't mean you're not going to sometimes do work at 7 p.m. There's Fridays in the summer where all of us have had to work and nobody grumbles about it because the policy is also that you get your work done. From Katie Patterson on behalf of Happy Medium. You choose your schedule. The team can work from anywhere. We also have a weekly mental health hour for each team member. And from Sarah Noel Wilson on behalf of her company, full-time team members work an average of 32 hours a week with no reduction of pay or benefits. We have set expectations for timing related to client work and team members. Otherwise, my colleagues manage their work during the week based on their needs. If they need to run an errand or take a nap because they are tired, they find time during the week to catch up. We explored doing a four-day work week, and at this point, the preference was to have flexibility across the whole week instead of condensed work days. In the next question, um, section regarding family leave, the first question is, what does the ideal family leave policy look like? Responses? one that never puts people in a situation where they have to sacrifice their family needs for the needs of an organization. We also need to expand our definition of family to move beyond just those with children or related by blood. Often those who are single, without children, or who have chosen family may not have the same access to the same benefits. Allow parents to use vacation time, short-term disability, or unpaid time off to take the time they need, but no longer than 12 weeks. I believe there should be full pay for up to 16 weeks for both parents, and after 16 weeks, it can be half pay up to 20 weeks. Then after 20 weeks, it would be short-term disability pay or long-term disability pay. I believe it should include immediate family and time off for a situation that can include sick parents, children, or siblings. One where the birthing parent is at a place where they can say they are ready to return to work. This means being physically and mentally healthy and in a state where you feel your infant is competent, is in competent quality care. The next survey question in this section, should maternity leave and paternity leave, also commonly combined to be called family leave, be equal in length? Arguments in favor of having the same amount of leave available for both birthing and non-birthing parents say that doing so helps set a precedent that parenting a child shouldn't just fall on one person. Arguments against it say that the birthing parents deserve more time to recover physically. The respondents? Not all leave is related to giving birth. Individuals can adopt or have a surrogate. Why is it only up to the mother to care for the baby in the first several months? As a same sex couple, we both want to be there to bond, care for, and nurture our child at the beginning, especially. By providing equal time off, it sets the precedence in that workplace that both men and women are equal. Our society needs to value fathers as much as mothers from day one. If fathers were more valued, they would start to take on more of the day to day care that overburdens mothers. When mothers are the ones arriving late or leaving early, or taking time off to take children to appointments, Women are perceived as less committed employees who deserve lower pay and don't deserve promotions. We need to rethink family dynamics and acknowledge that people have important lives outside of the workplace. Parental leave should be equal in length, but a birthing parent needs an additional short-term disability in addition to parental leave. Any parent should get the same amount of time to bond with a new child, but medical rehabilitation should not count as part of the bonding time. I understand the need for dad to have some bonding time, but there is something unexplained, undefined about a mother with her baby. She just carried the child for nine months, and between nursing, recouping and bonding that is different from a dad and baby. I agree there should be some paternity leave, but not to the extent of the mother. Mothers need more time in order to physically recover from the experience and adjust mentally. The next survey question, does your company offer paid parental leave? Policies listed by respondents varied widely. Some mentioned policies where the birthing parent is partially paid for six weeks. Some respondents said their employer's policies were tiered, where the longer you worked at the company, the longer the leave you get. Other responses said it's covered only through disability insurance or by using sick leave. The respondents, four weeks of paid time off at 80% for both parents, which can be supplemented with paid time off to reach 100% of pay. For birthing parents, an additional eight weeks is available. From Amanda Young on behalf of Bankers Trust. From Chad Carter on behalf of Fairway, two weeks at 100% pay for both parents and non-birthing parents. From Happy Medium, 12 weeks at 100% pay for moms, dads, and adoptive parents. The Iowa Center for Economic Success, six weeks at 100% pay for any parent in any way they become a parent. Children are allowed at the office full time until they are walking. Any children are allowed in the office on occasion that childcare or school is canceled. Daycare is grossly expensive. We're a nonprofit, so while we pay fair wages, nobody's getting wealthy at the Iowa Center. I don't want to lose somebody because they do the math and realize that paying for childcare doesn't make it worth it to keep working. From Shelley Eggermont on behalf of Athene For birthing parents who are employees with at least one year of service, they are eligible for thirteen weeks of paid leave at one hundred percent of pay. For employees with less than one year of service, they are eligible for paid leave under our short-term disability policy at 60% of pay. Non-birthing parents who have at least one year of service are eligible for two weeks of 100% pay. And from Georgia Van Gundy on behalf of hy v two weeks paid full for birthing and non-birthing parents. Can use short-term disability coverage for an extended period of time for the birth and adoption of children. The next survey question, how many weeks of paid family leave do you feel parents should be entitled to? Respondents were given choices ranging from zero weeks to more than 20 weeks. The most common answer for both birthing parents and non-birthing parents was 12 weeks. A similar question was posed to business record readers in 2016. That year, instead of birthing parent and non-birthing parent, it referred to women and men. The average response that year for women was 11.5 weeks and 7.6 weeks for men. And the most common answer that respondents selected was 12 weeks. Next survey question, does your company offer bereavement leave? Bereavement leave is a common benefit that many companies and organizations offer. Most of the responses in our survey mentioned a range between two and five days off for an immediate or extended family member's death. New to the national conversation around bereavement leave, though, is adding a loss of pregnancy to the list of eligible situations. Between 10 and 15% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. Yet there's no federal requirement to provide paid time off after pregnancy loss. Last year, the Waterloo City Council and Come and Go were two Iowa organizations that added pregnancy loss in their bereavement policies. Now to the survey section on health care. The next question, is access to mental health covered under your company's health insurance plan? The prevalence of mental health issues has risen since the onset of the pandemic. One study found that 35% of women have moderate to severe levels of depression, 27% of women have moderate to severe levels of stress, and 37% of women between 18 and 24 report suicidal thoughts. Employers have a responsibility to help support their workforce's mental health, whether that be through offering EAP resources, making sure counseling or psychiatric treatment is covered under health insurance plans, or simply lessening the stigma by talking about it. In response to this question, 81% said yes, access to mental health is covered under the company's health insurance plan. The next question, does your company offer fertility benefits? Roughly one in eight couples are known to struggle with infertility. Coverage of fertility benefits is growing throughout U.S. companies, though the range of what's covered varies. Some companies offer stipends for egg freezing or IVF treatment, while others simply cover appointments with specialists. As mentioned in a recent Fortune article, more companies are considering considering adding fertility benefits to their repertoires in an effort to attract and retain employees. In our survey, representatives from three publicly identified companies responded saying they offer fertility benefits. Hyvee said they're available to full-time employees and include treatment reimbursement up to five thousand dollars. The company also offers an adoption reimbursement up to $3,500 per adoption for full-time employees. Happy Medium offers a $2,000 reimbursement each year for fertility services. The University of Northern Iowa said fertility benefits are offered through its medical insurance. Overall response to this question was 80% no. Fertility benefits are not offered. Next is a financial empowerment section. The first survey question in this section, Should businesses and organizations implement salary transparency policies to help address pay inequity? There's no silver bullet to solve the gender pay gap or pay inequity, but experts agree that the best way to address the issue is by talking about it and acknowledging that it exists. Many experts believe that pay transparency policies would help. In a previous Fearless article, University of Iowa professor Beth Livingston argued transparency is useful for promoting equity in workplaces. She said, quote, It provides a check on manager actions and pay decisions while also demonstrating trust in employees. Research has shown that pay transparency can actually impl- improve employee motivation. When the process and outcomes around compensation are clearer, employees may actually perform better while simultaneously promoting equity and requiring companies to think through their compensation decision-making in more depth. Responses from the survey, 74% said yes. Businesses and organizations should implement salary transparency policies to help address pay inequity. Comments from respondents. In many small businesses, this happens naturally. In large corporations, I think management should be transparent about pay, including incentives and bonuses. State employees have salary transparency, and disparity still happens. Anything we can do to improve how much people know and can make informed decisions helps. It may be hard to keep it confidential depending on the size of the business. Privacy is still important. Employees have a right to know how their pay compares to that of their coworkers, to know how their work is valued. I've never understood why salary transparency isn't the norm. If they can justify paid differences, transparency should be a non issue. Workers in general leave a lot of money on the table merely due to lack of information. It's difficult to make informed decisions without information. And if that information is held in secret, entirely on the side of the employer to their benefit, the field is unlevel as soon as you step through the door. Next question. Uh, In the survey, does your company have pay transparency practices or policies? 59% of respondents said no. In 1997, Congress first introduced the Paycheck Fairness Act, which would ban employers from asking about salary history, require employers to prove why pay disparities exist, and bolster legal protections for those who file sex-based wage discrimination lawsuits or class actions. It has passed every year in the House since 2010, but never in the Senate. That leaves private companies and organizations to set their own practices and policies. In organizations that fall under the umbrella of the state or municipal governments, compensation is public record. Some examples of practices and policies around pay transparency included from the Beacon, Last year, we transitioned to pay equity and transparency by distributing a spreadsheet with everyone's compensation listed alongside industry standards. I had a one-on-one meeting with each staff person to address any questions or concerns. This has increased trust and equity within our organization. I used the average of several resources to determine the local industry standard, then paid each employee just above the industry standard or a living wage, $15 per hour, whichever was higher. The average entry or mid-level employee received a 43% pay increase in one year. From Bankers Trust, we post portions of salary ranges externally, and employees can request a salary range for any open role. The Iowa Center for Economic Success said, Pay is reviewed once a year, or any time an opportunity organically comes up to discuss them. And from Barbara Stinson on behalf of World Food Prize Foundation, We have a transparent step and grade system installed and about to be introduced to staff. The next survey question, when your company posts a job opening, is a salary or wage range included in the post? And responses were evenly split 50-50 between yes and no. In recent years, several states and cities have passed laws that require employers to post salary information for job openings, promotions, and transfer opportunities. Research shows keeping salaries secret disproportionately harms women and people of color who are less likely to negotiate base salaries and raises. Another argument for doing so is that it saves time by weeding out applicants whose salary expectations don't match up. I don't want to have someone spend the time and energy applying if we aren't able to offer what they are looking for or need, Sarah Noel Wilson said. The next survey question, does your company offer retirement benefits or a 401k match? 95% said yes. Women experience many barriers when it comes to saving for retirement. On average, women earn less over the course of a lifetime than men. Gaps in employment for mothers who have to take time off to care for children affect earning potential. One study found that for every child a woman has, her income falls by an average of 4 percentage points. Retirement benefits described in our survey varied. The most common responses were companies providing a 2 or 3% match to 401k plans. Other companies put limits on matches. For example, the company would match 100% up to 6% of an employee's contribution. Another respondent indicated they're part of an ESOP company, so they receive shares each year in their company's stock. The next questions are from the Company Culture and Development Opportunities section of the survey. Question, does your company offer free or low-cost professional development opportunities? 80% said yes. Whether formal or informal, participation in professional development opportunities is crucial for advancement. Many formal trainings or conferences can come with a price tag of hundreds or thousands of dollars, causing a barrier to access if an individual can't attend on their employer's dime or afford it themselves. Examples of development opportunities from companies from Sarah Noel Wilson, We invest in our colleagues' development through formal paths, such as certifications and workshops, to informal paths, such as mentoring, stretch assignments, books, and involvement in strategic decisions. Bankers Trust said, We've created two internal leadership development programs. And also offer a new manager boot camp and several free trainings to all team members on topics ranging from mental health to leadership to personal development. And World Food Prize Foundation stated, We provide 1200 to $2,000 annual support to an employee for relevant professional development training and conferences. The next survey question in this section Does your company offer affinity groups for underrepresented employees? 27% said yes. Affinity groups, also commonly called employee resource groups, are organized communities of employees within a workplace who share identities, whether gender, ethnicity, religious affiliation, ability, or lifestyle. They exist to provide support and foster a safe environment where people can bring their whole selves to the table. Examples of affinity groups that respondents included in our survey were ones for women, LGBTQ folks, Asian Americans, Black people, Hispanic Latino people, veterans, and new moms. And finally, some thoughts from Megan Milligan of the Iowa Center for Economic Success. On why she implemented the policies and benefits the center offers, she said, the base of any benefit we offer is what is real life? How do you legally, equitably manage that in a way that you get work done and you're good stewards of the dollars and revenue that comes through your door but also that your employee feels like they're part of the mission, not just a cog in the wheel to get a certain outcome done. I think the reason I wanted to be a boss was to make sure that other people had access to the benefits. I don't particularly like being a boss, except that I know I can make normal expectations for people. People are working harder than ever. You just have to give grace alongside high expectations on why she's working to remove gender differences within the language of benefits and policies. She said, I did not experience any gender differences in my own life in terms of discrimination or things I couldn't access until I had children. That became the great divide. For me, my cause was changing the word mom to parents and starting to proactively raise up the father's. Until you start treating dads a certain way at work, you're not going to get moms to be treated a certain way. I sat with my coworkers the other day and asked, what benefits do we offer or do we need to offer that are just for women? We couldn't come up with any. Someone said miscarriage. Well, we should be telling the dad to take some time off too. They said, what about infertility? To that, I said that they should go to the clinic together. We're trying to ungenderize. If we're not doing that, then we're leaving a whole other group of people out because there are people who are gender fluid or don't identify with a gender. We have to start acting like where we want to get to. If where we want to get to is total equality and equitable workplaces, let's just start there and on why she hates the term work-life balance. We treat our employees like people who have lives outside of our office and recognize that those lives are happening simultaneously to when they're at work. When did my personal life become one thing and my job another? A lot of us are lucky enough to pursue careers that are part of my identity. My job is also my hobby. It's my social hour. It's how I learn. It's how I get away from my children. So why did they become two separate buckets that we have to segregate? It all overlaps. You are listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, April fifteenth, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now turning to Susan DeBaca, President and CEO, of Business Publications Corporation, on Leadership Column. The Great Leadership Disconnect. Are you out of touch with your team? As I listen to some leaders or board directors talk about the desire for their company's workforce to return to various pre-pandemic ways of working, I am reminded of one of my dad's old sayings. That horse has left the barn. This little nugget of farm wisdom meant there was no going back to the way things used to be. New research validates that today's workforce does not want to turn back the clock. They have new or different priorities. But that research also reveals that many leaders are dead set on certain ways of working, oblivious to or disregarding employees' preferences. While many are referring to the shifting dynamics in the workplace as the great resignation or the great reshuffle, I'm starting to wonder if the period we are living in should also be called the great leadership disconnect. You may be saying, well, that's not me. I know what my team wants. But do you? Two significant recent studies indicate major disconnects, especially in preferences around hybrid and remote work. Here are some findings that made me sit up and take notice. Disconnect number one. A new Microsoft 2022 Work Trends Index that surveyed 31,000 people from 31 countries found that 54% of managers feel that leadership is out of touch with employee expectations. Disconnect number two. Another new study conducted last summer by the Future Forum surveyed more than 10,000 workers globally and reported an, quote, executive employee disconnect, end quote, specifically as it relates to getting back to an office setting. Disconnect number three, in the future forum report, 66% of executives report they are designing post-pandemic workforce policies with little to no direct input from employees. The same number believe they're being, quote, very transparent, end quote, regarding their redesigned policies, but only 42% of employees agree. Disconnect number four, Both studies showed major disconnects around hybrid and remote work policies. For example, the Microsoft study found 50% of leaders want to return to the office full-time, whereas 52% of employees were considering going hybrid or fully remote in the coming year. The Future Forum research similarly showed that employees self-reported that they're more than four times more likely than executives to want to work remotely full-time. For hybrid plans, even the preferred number of days in the office differed between executives and their teams, with nearly 44% of executives saying they want to work from the office every day, compared with 17% of employees. Around 75% of the executives say they want to work from the office 3 to 5 days a week versus only 34% of employees. Disconnect number 5. The majority of executives are building return-to-the-office plans despite what they hear from their teams, according to the future forum research. Why are these disconnects happening and what do they mean? I understand that there are no clear answers about the future of work and that companies do have different needs based on industry and role. Some of the transition from pre-pandemic days is still playing out and remains to be seen. Regardless, a few things are clear. Leaders who do not understand and engage their workforces put their companies at risk. Leaders who disregard employee feedback send a strong message about trust and respect. And when there is a disconnect of this magnitude between leaders and team members, employees disengage or leave. As you contemplate the great resignation and great reshuffling, what can you do? In an environment where nearly every business is struggling with recruitment and retention, it seems like a good time to do some leadership soul searching. Are you really hearing what your team is saying? Are you truly open to feedback? Are you yourself willing to work differently? And most importantly, instead of being disconnected and clinging to pre-pandemic policies, how can you use this opportunity to reconnect or reset with your team? From the business record's Tech and innovate, Innovation section, Orbiting the Earth from Marshalltown by Joe Gardiaz. The business record recently got a behind-the-scenes look at how a Marshalltown-based company, Mechdyne, is building enterprise-scale, world-class, augmented reality and virtual reality interactive display systems for companies around the world. Many Iowans may not have heard of the company, but they likely have experienced its work when visiting any number of its client companies across the state. For instance, Iowa State University's new Student Innovation Center features displays that were custom-built by mechdyne The company will be featured as part of an upcoming article about augmented reality and virtual reality technologies in the 2022 Innovation Iowa magazine to be published in July. James Gruning, the company's co-founder, provided senior staff writer Joe Guardias and our photographer Duane Tinky with a tour of the company's technical center which is located in a warehouse within walking distance from Mechdyne's historic headquarters, a three-story brick building where Ford Model A trucks were once assembled. The multifaceted technology company has developed increasingly immersive AR-VR technology-based systems for the past 25 years. Inside the high-ceilinged 30,000-square-foot technical center, Mechdyne technicians work on a constant stream of high-tech display projects that are designed, engineered, and then precisely built within flexibly spaced bays on a project-by-project basis, using Kaizen and lean manufacturing best practices. We use every inch of it, Gruning said, of the space. Once assembled and tested, the displays are then carefully packed and shipped to clients around the world. The Mechdyne teams travel with each project to personally construct the displays on site, whether it's on the ISU campus or at a corporate technology campus in the Middle East. The company's systems have been installed at clients' locations in 48 states and 42 countries, and the pace of its international work has been picking up, Gr- Gruning said. Most of our displays are interactive, he said, noting that many of their corporate customers are manufacturers that use the AR-VR displays for prototyping new products or devices. McDine has done projects for various U.S. federal agencies, the largest of which was a 10,000-square-foot vir- virtual reality battlefield simulator that MECDYN built and tested in Marshalltown. Using that system... Army medics and soldiers take part in day-long training exercises conducted by the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Two years ago, Mechdyne launched its own manufacturing unit that makes custom-built engineered structures for video displays, a function it formerly contracted out. A highlight of the visit to the technical center was personally experiencing an immersive commercial-grade LED wall panel, which a Mechdyne application engineer, Kelsey Levi, had set up for us. Using a joystick and wearing special glasses tracking the user's movements, we got an astronaut's view of floating around the exterior of the International Space Station as the Earth rotated below us using a simulation that Mechdyne had developed for NASA. While we were wowed by seeing this on a 60-inch, super-high-definition screen, a Mechdyne client uses a multiple-panel version that spans a large room to provide an immersive experience. Mechdyne's 350 employees are spread across about 10 office locations in addition to Marshalltown, among them Chicago, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and the United Kingdom, as well as remote workers who work in countries such as Sweden and Malaysia. About 20% of the company's workers are based in Marshalltown. For Levi, who graduated with a mathematics degree from Wartburg College less than two years ago, landing a position with Mekdyne and being able to do this type of work in Marshalltown was an incredible opportunity. Gruning said while McDyne does hire a lot of engineers in the STEM fields, many of his technical people don't have engineering degrees. We're really looking for a certain type of person, he said. Our approach is that we hire for attitude and train for skill. Look for more photos and the article about AR-VR technology trends in our 2022 issue of Innovation Iowa magazine. Now, turning to the marketing column by Drew McClellan. Four Pillars of Marketing Know Who Matters. After 20 years of writing this column, I've decided it's time to step aside and let someone else share their wisdom. My final four columns will be focused on what I believe are the four most important elements of marketing. Get these four correct, and the rest is just details. The four cornerstones of marketing are your brand, your audience, giving first, and surrounding yourself with the right people. This week, we'll tackle your audience. This is probably the marketing pillar that is most often mishandled by organizations. We have all of these misperceptions about who we should talk to when it comes to our products and services. Here are some of the biggies. The bigger the audience, the better. We should invest most of our time and money on talking to prospects. If we've told them something a couple of times, they will remember it. The primary purpose of marketing is to get our audience to buy something. Let's tackle these in order and debunk the myths. The bigger the audience, the better. If you're Coca-Cola, that might be true. But for the average small to mid-sized business, it couldn't be more wrong. First, 95% of the world's population is never going to be your customer and doesn't really care about your products or services. Second, you have limited resources in both time and money. You can't afford the shotgun approach. You need to be very judicious with your efforts. Think narrow and deep. You want to communicate with the people who can actually pay a dividend. The second myth, we should invest most of our time and money talking to prospects. This is absolutely backwards. Our most important audience is our internal team. If they're not on board, fully informed and inspired, we can never delight our customers or prospects in the long term. They need to know the score and be invited to weigh in if we're going to earn their buy-in, loyalty, and passion. From there, we need to talk to our current clients. It's much easier to get the second dollar than it was to get the first. We've earned their attention and their trust. Now we have the opportunity to prove to them that they made a good choice. After those two critical audiences are feeling our love, then we can return to the prospects. The next myth, if we've told them something a couple of times, they will remember it. Research shows us that a person needs to be exposed to the same message 8 to 13 times before they even register that we're talking to them at all. The good news is that you have many channels and different formats to communicate the same message. Remember that your audience members don't all consume information in the same way. You will want to mix audio, video, written word, and tools like online reviews and testimonials to cement your core messages in the conscious mind of your consumer. And the final myth, the primary purpose of marketing is to get our audience to buy something. This is why so many marketing tactics are unwelcomed and ignored and actually turn off the prospect. Marketing is about attracting your right fit clients to you. It's about demonstrating that you understand their frustrations and worries and you can be of service whether they buy something from you or not. Marketing is about being the first to show your cards to demonstrate value and insight without expectation of a sale. Someone has to give first, and it turns out it's us. In next week's column, we'll explore what giving first means, what it costs you, and how it pays dividends every single time, as long as you don't bait and switch. But marketing's job is not to sell. It's to create a relationship where we are relevant and of value. We can't sell until we accomplish those goals. From the business records calendar of the week ahead, on Wednesday, April 20th, the commercial real estate forum will be hosted by the business record. This fast-paced event gives a snapshot of some of the top real estate projects underway or planned in the greater Des Moines area. The event will be future-focused and attendees will come away with varying perspectives on the outlook for commercial real estate in Greater Des Moines for the next 18 months. We will also recognize the 2022 Iowa State University Ivy College of Business Real Estate Professional of the Year. The event is Wednesday the 20th from 7.30 to 9 a.m. at the Sheraton Hotel. Thursday and Friday, April 21st and 22nd, is Athene Black and Brown Business Summit, hosted by the West Des Moines Chamber of Commerce. The second annual summit will bring everyone from entrepreneurs to seasoned companies together in a hybrid setting at Athene in West Des Moines, Iowa. The summit includes a pitch competition breakout sessions led by top experts, Mel Essex Award, inspirational keynote speakers, and more. And on Friday, April 22nd at 6 p.m. at the Ron Pearson Center, an all-star evening hosted by Robert D. and Billy Ray Center at Drake University. The center will honor Bill Knapp, a distinguished Iowan with a deep commitment to improving our state, with the Robert D. and Billy Ray Pillar of Character Award. And on Saturday, April 23rd from 5 to 10 p.m., the Animal Rescue League's largest event of the year, supporting hundreds of pets who will enter our doors this year, Enjoy a night out with other animal lovers just like you for a chance to win silent or live auction items, meet some of the TheraPet teams, and more. Held at the Community Choice Credit Union Convention Center. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, April fifteenth, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
1: Of economic Geology, this is EarthDate. Insects first appeared around 400 million years ago, long before mammals or flowering plants, even before dinosaurs. Then, around 315 million years ago, they were the first creatures to learn to fly. Insect wings are actually the most durable part of their body, and the most likely to appear in the fossil record, giving us a pretty good idea of insect development. Their size increased in direct relation to the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. Once oxygen hit 30%, 9% higher than today, the largest insects had wingspans over 2 feet. Around the same time, avian dinosaurs developed and large insects were easy prey. To survive, they became smaller, faster, and more agile. Dragonflies develop speed. They're able to hit 35 miles an hour, but have the most primitive kind of wing. Flies develop maneuverability. Their shorter, folding wings allow them to dart into small openings. Other insects evolve new uses for wings. The front wings of beetles became hard covers to protect them from predators or while burrowing. The wings of some moths became camouflage to blend into specific environments. Butterflies develop brightly colored wings to attract mates or to warn enemies they're poisonous. Grasshoppers and crickets can even use their wings to fill the air with sound. We tend to take wing insects for granted or consider them a nuisance. But next time you see a dragonfly hunting mosquitoes or hear a cicada sing, you're witnessing evolutionary biology hundreds of millions of years old. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.